Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 71, The Legend of Wonder Woman. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and I'm kicking off 2017 with a look at a character who's going to be a hot one in 2017. And I don't mean shag hot, I mean American comics slash entertainment this month, She just celebrated her 75th anniversary and will be celebrating her first solo feature film. And of course, I am talking about Wonder Woman. Now, I'm one of a number of podcasters who have looked at something involving Wonder Woman over the course of the year. A few shows went back and talked about her origins. Others hit on famous runs, including the first part of the George Paris run from 1987. I'm going to take a slightly different approach, as I'm looking at two miniseries that have the exact same name, yet were published 30 years apart. And they are called, well, if you couldn't guess it from the episode title, The Legend of Wonder Woman. I chose both of these series because there's something that I haven't heard covered on the shows that I listen to on a regular basis, but because they're more or less separate from the continuity of the character at the times that they're published. So they don't require me to have an extensive knowledge of Wonder Woman, which I admit that I do not. Okay, that's not exactly true. I've read quite a bit of Wonder Woman, I just actually don't have a lot of experience reading Wonder Woman. My origin story with her goes back to my origin story with most of the classic Justice League lineup, which is Challenge of the Super Friends. I mean, that cartoon aired continuously throughout my childhood. Plus, when I was pretty young, syndicated stations in New York were still running episodes of the Linda Carter television show. So when I was playing with friends, I had at least one who would carry around a jump rope and spin around to transform herself into Wonder Woman. But I honestly never read her comics until about 1991, which is when I picked up the War of the Gods crossover. So I came in at the end of the George Perez run. From there, I would pick up issues of the comic that were specific tie-ins or crossovers with larger events, such as Eclipse of the Darkness Within. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, I did have a decent portion of the John Byrne and Phil Jimenez runs in the book, and since then it's been just as sporadic. A few issues of Greg Rucka's run that ended with Infinite Crisis, some of the post-Infinite Crisis issues, Brian Azzarello's run, which I liked at first but then realized was only hanging on to because I love the artwork. But, to bring this intro to a close, I am currently reading her comic. Uh, I left the book right after Azzarello and Cliff Chang did, and came back with Rebirth, and have been enjoying the ride ever since. And seriously, the current Wonder Woman book is such a great book right now, I cannot recommend it enough. And really, that's my origin story for Wonder Woman. Although, I'll have a little more to say at the end of the episode about my experience with Diana and the Amazons. But for now, I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I'm going to cover the 1986 four-issue miniseries by Kurt Busaic and Trina Robbins entitled The Legend of Wonder Woman. Stick around. You have traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. 
I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But, as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth-episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So, check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, every eighth Tuesday, for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville, every eighth Tuesday, only at Two True Freaks. The series The Legend of Wonder Woman was published from January to April of 1986 and was cover dated May through July of 1986. The comic retailed for 75 cents and its creative team was as follows. Kurt Busaic was the writer. Trina Robbins was the artist and cult plotter. L. Lois Bahalas was the letterer. Nancy Houlihan colorist. Mike Gold was the editor. I'm going to run down all four issues in terms of their plot, and I'm going to start with another comic book entirely, which is Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12. Toward the end of that issue, as Alexander Luther holds the gate open between the antimatter and positive matter universes along long enough for Earth and its heroes to get through, the Anti-Monitor, who is down but not completely destroyed, fires a blast that seemingly obliterates Wonder Woman. However... We learn after the mon Anti-Monitor has been killed that Wonder Woman did not die, but she devolved, reverting to her original clay form. Issue number one, therefore, opens after the events of Crisis number 12, and this issue did come out almost exactly two months after Crisis 12, so we are in that odd hangover period that took place between the end of Crisis and the publishing of stories like Man of Steel, Batman Year One, Legends, and the Perez Wonder Woman book, the last of which came out nine months after this comic. Our first page reflects the hangover of sorts, showing a statue of Wonder Woman on Paradise Island with the narration of, The crisis is past, the universe is once again safe and normal, and life goes on for the survivors. The terrible price of victory burdens the hearts of those who will soon forever desert an island called Paradise. They who be beneath the sightless gaze of the clay figure that once was Wonder Woman. The Amazons look forward to a glorious eternity in the inextinguishable light of Olympus. But nothing can ever ease this female nation's grief. And our title for issue number one is Legends Live Forever. Queen Hippolyta is putting some of Diana's things in order and comes across an old magic sphere of hers which allows her to appear into different points in time. She looks upon the post-World War II era and sees a parade in which Wonder Woman was marching with Steve Trevor. As they march and flirt, they are interrupted by the appearance of Atomia, who threatens everyone in Washington, D.C. Wonder Woman says she won't let that happen and then takes Atomia and then Atomia has her Neutronic slaves attack. They then take several people, including Steve Trevor, hostage, and send them back to Atami's galaxy, which is a pocket galaxy represented by a giant orange glowing ball. Wonder Woman is left behind and fights with several of Atami's female atom warriors and snatches the galaxy ball with her magic lasso. Atami then escapes to her atomic galaxy and leaves Wonder Woman behind. When things calm down, she meets a girl with a Shirley Temple haircut named Susie, whom Etta Candy apparently sent to be with her. Wonder Woman is suspicious and says she'll have Susie stay with Diana Prince, and then flies off. In the Atom Galaxy, Atomia spies on Wonder Woman in the Earth and expresses why she hates her, because she hates all of the freedom that the people of Earth have, and Wonder Woman represents that freedom. 
Diana tries to help Susie settle in after she confirms with Etta Candy that the girl is related to her, although Etta says that Susie's basically being stubborn and imposing herself on her heroine. She sneaks into her bedroom and radios Paradise Island. Susie listens in and sees that Diana is Wonder Woman, and after the communication follows her back to the tidal basin, where Wonder Woman meets with Atomia. She demands the release of the people Atomia kidnapped, but the villainous resists, turning a simple fish to a, into a sea monster. Diana fights off the sea monster. Susie is taken, almost taken by an unknown woman. And when Susie tries to come to the aid of her hero, the sea monster knocks both of them out. But before Atomia can capture them, the strange woman who is Tashi of Kanjin House whisks them away in a jet, and they almost get away, but Atomia blasts the jet with her powers. Issue number two is called The Land of Mirrors, and we open with a shot of Hippolyta looking at the time sphere, and then we pick up where we left off with the crashed plane. Wonder Woman and Susie are okay and have crashed in the Gobi Desert. They walk off in search of civilization, while in the Atomic Galaxy, Steve Trevor and the rest of the people in captivity are being forced to do hard labor and mine uranium. Steve has a hunch and discovers that if you hit one of the Atomic Warriors with uranium, they blow up. Later, while in their cell they've been placed in, Steve tells the rest of the people what he discovered. Wonder Woman and Susie wind up in the Land of Mirrors, which is full of people who are wearing what look like Mongol uniforms. They see her as a hostile at first, but then the rulers of the Land of Mirrors, Solala and Layla, approach and admonish their guards for not recognizing Wonder Woman, who ended their feud and saved their land a few years earlier. Later in a banquet in Wonder Woman's honor, this honor, the sisters recall how they used to feud, and then Wonder Woman made them realize that they could rule together in kindness rather than with fear. They also share that a few weeks earlier they were attacked by Atomia, who vowed to take their most precious possession, the Sun Jewel, which is their major power source. Susie, finding all of this boring, steals away to a garden and flips through a book about Greek myths and legends, and is amazed as well as amazed that she is a part of this epic adventure with Wonder Woman as she fights Atomia. She's then approached by two kids who recently lost their parents and thinks to herself about how they really are heroes. Wonder Woman is led to her quarters at the end of the banquet and is quickly double-crossed by Layla, who then attacks her sister and contacts Atomia, who launches an attack on the Land of Mirrors. Wonder Woman escapes from her bonds and goes after Atomia, fighting her hand-to-hand while Susie looks on. But Diana is defeated, defeated and captured. Susie then tries to intervene by attacking one of Atomia's warriors, but she too is captured. Atomia then tells Layla that their bargain is complete and takes off with Wonder Woman, Susie, and Salala as her captives, while Layla realizes that her bargain was not what she thought it was, and she thinks of revenge. Inside the Atom Galaxy is the title of issue number three, and we open with Wonder Woman in chains and Susie ordering her to grovel before her and Atomia. Wonder Woman is sent to the dungeon, and back in modern day, Hippolyta continues to watch the event and explains to Paula, who's been watching this with her, what the story has been all about up to this point, recapping issues number one and two. And then she zooms in on Layla, who is sneaking around the Atomic Galaxy. She runs across Steve Trevor, who agrees to work with her, if only to keep an eye on her. They then find Wonder Woman, who is chained up, but who easily breaks the chains. Her powers, she says, only go away when she's chained by a man, so she decided to play along. They are soon spotted and start fighting the guards. They escape the castle and reach the Probability Hills, which is an area that is a piece that is all sorts of screwy and rainbowy. They can get out of there, but Layla wants to go back and kill Atomia, while Wonder Woman says she can't leave without Susie. Layla and Wonder Woman start arguing, and Layla complains about how her sister is in a dungeon while they argue. They begin walking back to the dungeon and can't seem to find it, having walked to the other side of the planetoid, which apparently isn't very big. Layla then says she can contact her sister and does so, using their psychic connection to get Salala to attack the guards. Elsewhere, Steve is injured, and they head back to Atomia's castle, where Wonder Woman confronts Susie, who is pitching a spoiled brat fit about wanting to stay with Atomia and be an empress. Wonder Woman threatens Susie into getting her to come with her, and then drags her off by force. They run into Atomia and escape by burying the villain under parts of the building. Outside, with Stussy still protesting, Wonder Woman and the captives escape and begin to head home, while years later, Hippolyta and Paula continue watching. And then, the scene shifts to years ago, where Wonder Woman and the rest of them return to Paradise Island. Diana implores the Amazon to help her defeat Atomia, who poses a huge threat. And soon enough, we see Atomia 
on her way to the island, blasting about it in an effort to find it. Wonder Woman knows the island which they hidden and gives the Amazons enough time to train, while Paula tells Susie to stay in a protected place. Of course, Susie knows that won't last very long. Issue number four is called Splitting the Atom. It opens with a quick recap of issues number one through three. And then we see Susie riding a giant kangaroo type of thing and getting frustrated that she lost a game, calling it unfair. She's called out for cheating and then talks about how she learned about Pelops, who cheated and won. She gets explained to that Pelops was actually a fair person and not a cheater. Tries to teach and and they try to teach her a lesson about how to win. You have to play fair. Susie just decides to be a brat and runs off. Elsewhere, Wonder Woman rallies the Amazons and they head to the Atom Galaxy. She finds Steve Trevor, who is in terrible shape. Steve offers him some help and gives him the tip of going to the Probability Hills, which the Atom people won't like, and then Wonder Woman has Paula take him home. Meanwhile, Susie looks through her book and is confronted by Atomia, who gives her, who tries to get the information about Wonder Woman's plan out of the child. Susie tries not to talk, but Atomia literally twists her arm and then says that the kangaroo army that the Amazons are using is a diversion. Because Wonder Woman has a master plan, which involves her finding the machine that is absorbing the power that the atomic world is siphoning off. Atomia then confronts Wonder Woman and the two fight. During the fight, Susie throws her book at the machine and damages it so that it won't work. Wonder Woman knocks Atomia out, and then she and Susie leave the atomic galaxy and return to an area near Paradise Island where Steve Trevor is waiting for her. He gives her a kiss and they check in on everyone else, including Salala and Leia. Then, we get to the epilogues. Epilogue 1 has Diana and Etta Candy returning Susie home and Susie finding herself grounded. She's not happy at first, although Diana gives her a glare and the child straightens right up. In the second epilogue, Hippolyta has been showing the story to the Amazons, but they don't know who the woman in the costume is. Hippolyta doesn't understand why the Amazons don't remember Diana, and then Paula admits that her memories of Wonder Woman are becoming hazy, and as the Queen runs into the temple, her own memories start to fade. It's just then that Aphrodite appears and explains, There has been a great conflict in the universe. Reality itself has been altered from the dawn of time onward. In the new reality, your daughter never existed, and due to the mystic shields I erected around the island, so do you, but only temporarily. Soon, the Amazons will be completely assimilated into this reality. By now, most of them have forgotten even me. Apollita asks what they can do, and Aphrodite says, Nothing. I came to offer you comfort. If you wish it, I can remove you and your sister Amazons from the new reality altogether. Others may take your place in the new order, but you will remain separate. If I do this, you will never have existed as humans, but you will never forget either. Apollo says has to do it. With a sweep of her arm, Aphrodite clears out Paradise Island, thinking... Shall find you a place in the heavens, my Amazons, and as constellations you will shine your light down on earth, hopefully to inspire others to lives as heroic as your own. And as she goes, Aphrodite removes the mystic wards from around the island, and the new reality sweeps over the tiny speck of land, a new destiny overtaking it. Aphrodite's last thought as she allows the new reality to sweep over Paradise Island as she returns to Mount Olympus is, I wonder what it'll be like. So before I get into my criticism, I want to give you a little bit of background and information on both Atomia and the Land of Mirrors, or specifically Salala and Leia, all, Layla, all of whom are covered in Michael Fleischer's complete encyclopedia of, of, of superheroes. Here's a little bit on, on Atomia. Uh, Atomia, Queen. The red-haired, green-eyed monarch of Atomic Kingdom U-235, the ruling planet of a vast atomic universe. After her treacherous dictatorial ambitions have been repeatedly thwarted by Wonder Woman, and after the goddess Aphrodite has welded a, quote, magic Venus girdle around her waist with the rays of eternal love, Atami resolves henceforth to use the power of the atom to help humanity. In January, February 1947, a mysterious sphere of uranium atoms released by the detonation of an atomic bomb at a test site somewhere in the Pacific grows rapidly in size and complexity by capturing neutons from the fragments of the exploded atom bomb. As the hurtling ball of atomic radioactivity propels itself through the Apollo, see uh, Paula von Gunther, Baroness, acting under Woman or Woman's instructions, snares it with a magic magnetic Amazon sky trap and takes it to her laboratory for study. From the captured sphere of uranium atoms called an atomic universe, Paula carefully isolates one uranium atom so that she and Wonder Woman can examine it under the Amazon mass spectrometer. 
after Etta Candy and the Holiday Girls had been summoned to Paula's laboratory to observe the forthcoming atomic experiments, Wonder Woman and her friends gaze at the isolated uranium atom through a special Amazon microscope, watching it resolve before their very eyes into a tiny atomic world populated by protons and neutrons. But, cries Wonder Woman in amazement, these protons in the atom planet are really women, and these neutrons see they're turning into creatures like robots. Furious with Adam, with Wonder Woman and Paula for capturing the atomic universe I was building, Atomia resolves to wreak vengeance on the unsuspecting humans. By ordering her neutron slaves to turn a more electronic force, she causes her entire atom planet to leap off the stage of the Amazon microscope and into the beaker of water in a nearby section of the laboratory. The chemical reaction which results when Atomia's U-235 kingdom comes into contact with the water in the beaker produces hydroxogas, a strange vapor which renders Wonder Woman and her companions unconscious, shrinks them to microscopic size, and transports them into Atomia's atomic world in the form of proton girls. The radioactive vapor have turned the mortals into protons, gloats Atomia. Ha ha! Atomia's scheme involves transforming Wonder Woman, Paula, Etta Candy, and the Holiday Girls into mindless neutron slaves, but the captives manage ultimately to escape and make their way back to their own full-size world. And um, that is her first story in Wonder Woman number 21, first story, The Mystery of the Atom World. Uh, so that that's just a little bit of background on Atomia, clearly influenced by the time in which she was created. And then you have Layla... The Land of Mirrors and Solalis. This is the the Layla entry from the same Encyclopedia of Superheroes. The evil Layla, the evil queen, along with her peace-loving twin sister Solala, is the co-ruler of the Sun Country, a rich and fertile country in the heart of the Gobi Desert. Ah, which explains the Mongol Mongolian-looking uniforms. Layla is defeated by Wonder Woman in 1948, thus freeing Salala to rule the Sun Country in peace and kindness, unhindered by her evil sister. When Steve Trevor flies to the Gobi Desert in July of 48 to investigate reports of a mysterious wall of white light said to have caused a United States Army aircraft to burst into flames upon contact, Etta Candy stows away aboard his plane so as to not miss out on any forthcoming excitement. And Wonder Woman follows in her Amazon plane. See Wonder Woman section C for the robot plane. So as to be able to rescue Trevor if he goes, gets into trouble. In the heart of the Gobi Desert, Wonder Woman comes upon the Sun Country, a rich fertile land protected by the so-called Great Lights or Mirrors of Light, responsible for the destruction of the army plane. There, Wonder Woman meets Layla and Salala, twin sisters who rule the Sun Country jointly, but who are locked in a continual struggle for power, with Salala on the side of peace and goodness and Layla on the side of treachery and evil. The inhabitants of the Sun Country are avid sun worshippers, who have created numerous ingenious devices for harnessing the sun's energy. Embroiled with the most, almost immediately upon her arrival in a deadly struggle with the evil Layla, who has already taken Steve Trevor and dedicated prisoner, Wonder Woman defeats the evil monarch rescues her friends from the villains' clutches, Layla will be taken to Transformation Island to learn submission to loving authority, while Solala remains behind to rule the Sun Country alone. Uh, Sensation Comics number 79, Land of Mirrors. Now, I have to say that this series is a bit of an odd duck in the mid-80s, because uh, so much of it is meant as a tribute to the Golden Age Wonder Woman. I mean, the, the two references I read were from 47 and 48. Uh, Kurt Busiek and Trina Robbins, though, did a really great job of putting it all together and really digging deep to find characters and settings that are from Wonder Woman's history. Susie's not an old character, by the way. She's new. She was also pretty annoying, but I feel that's intentional. It's like Busiek was trying to employ some of the tropes of the time, like there because there were plenty of annoying kid characters in the 1940s, trust me. What's interesting about this series, though, is that it probably didn't even have to tie into Crisis and would have worked with just the story about the fight with Atomia, and yet Busaic sets up a framing device that works really well and is consistent with his post-Crisis hangover period that a few DC books had in 1986. After Crisis on Infinite Earths ended, some titles were relaunched completely and others were rebranded, while others simply shifted into the new continuity kind of seamlessly. But then you have books like the All-Star Squadron, which, if I recall correctly, had a storyline where the changes from Crisis set in gradually and were more like a ripple effect. Maybe Scott or Mike can clarify on that. I think it involved a robot named Mechanique, if I'm not... Or Mechanique, 
which if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, this series, The Legend of Wonder Woman, came out concurrently and immediately after Crisis Number 12, and the devolving back into clay in Crisis Number 12 and Paradise Island disappearing at the end of that book, this book suggests that the Perez relaunch was being seeded here in a way. The continuity dork in me loves that framing device, and it really does make me feel like it's a tribute wrapping things up in a bow for the character. Passaic and Robbins each had something to say in the books. They both wrote text pieces. Passaic's is uh, is really really long. Um, I, I believe it's it's his. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's it's two full pages. It would take up um, the entire what is meant for the entire uh, letter column. And uh, he basically goes through what it what the series is about and what he thinks of Wonder Woman. He talks about how he read a number of uh, columns and fanzines and things in the press saying that Wonder Woman wasn't hand well. And he goes through how this came up and um, and, and he talks about teaming with Trina Robbins about continuity. He says, so why this miniseries? Well, there's some time between the last issue of the old Wonder Woman, Woman series and the first issue of the new, and that gives us a chance to do something a little special, to give the character a send-off that doesn't simply bring the series to a close, but harkens back to the salad days of the series, the Moulton and Peter days that so many comics pros love and so many modern readers are totally unaware of. And that's why they hired uh, Trina Robbins, and he goes you know, and through a, a number of conversations that they have, and and, uh, and he, he talks about the science a little. He says, before I forget, I want to make sure I mention Carl Wasmuth. He's an old college friend of mine who made a distinct contribution to the series. Every time I had to handle something in the script that was based on real scientific principles, I'd call Carl and pick his brain. Once I'd gotten enough to hard science out of Carl to work with, I distorted it and changed it until it fit the strange attitude towards science that the 1940s and 50s Wonder Woman had and that Atomia practically demands. So you may not recognize it much, but any sensible information you see in these pages about radiation and nuclear physics probably came from Carl. You know, he goes a little bit about the uh, the the whole thing with about the crisis and the continuity. He says, you know, don't try to pin this down on one Wonder Woman from from Earth two or earth one or whatever it's just wonder woman and he says and to conclude he says despite the fact that we go to great length here to the back of the book to about why we did this series and and how we went about it and how much fun we had doing it and on and on it's up to you to like it or not like it and at least for number one you've probably made up your mind before you get around to reading this tiny type we hope you enjoyed it and that's why we did it um and because it won't be long for the all-new Ready for the 80s Wonder Woman series to be coming your way. So um, I'm going to post this whole thing to the show notes, and, and I recommend you read it because it's a nice little behind-the-scenes thing. Uh, and be safe, it's like very, very thorough. As for Trina Robbins, this is a little shorter, um, and I will actually read the whole thing. It's The Legend of the Legend of Wonder Woman. Once upon the time in the 1950s, there was a little girl who avidly read Wonder Woman. Every week when she got her 25 cents allowance, we got much smaller allowances in those days, she would run down to the corner drugstore to find the latest sensation Wonder Woman comics cavalcade, anything that featured the lovely Amazonian princess, beautiful as Aphrodite, wise as Athena, swifter than Mercury, and, well, you get the picture. Dear readers, can you guess who that girl, little girl was? Well, no, not Jeanette Kahn. No, not Gloria Steinem. Okay, it's true. I was one of only thousands of girls who ardently gobbled up all Wonder Woman comics in the 50s. In those days, Wonder Woman was still being drawn by her original artist, the great Harry G. Peter. And although her creator, Charles Moulton, had died a few years back, the books still retained the colorful element of fantasy that had so endeared them to the hearts of America's young female population in the 40s. Young girls aren't too crazy about cops and robbers, which was the theme of the average action comic from that period. We also didn't relate a whole lot to all those costume heroes running around flexing their muscles. That was boy stuff. But the intrepid Amazon was for us, a superior female character who had the kind of adventures we liked. Trips to fantastic lost kingdoms and meetings with beautiful and often evil queens and empresses. Here's where that story gets sad. The little girl became a teenager and her mother convinced her to give away her Wonder Woman collection. Because comics are just for kids, right? Well, shortly after I gave away what must have been thousands of dollars worth of comics, thanks, Mom, Harry G. Peter passed away to that great artist studio in the sky, and other artists took over Wonder Woman. But I didn't know this. I was busy trying to be a grown-up, so I didn't look at another comic for about ten years. 
Finally, in the mid-60s, I gave up on trying to be a grown-up and went back to comics. I even started drawing them. To my horror, I found that some new artist was drawing Wonder Woman and she no longer looked like the Amazon I had known and loved in the 50s. Actually, for a brief period in 1966, writer Bob Kaniger and artists Andrew and Esposito did attempt to do a Golden Age Wonder Woman, but although the artwork, the stories were missing that wonderful fantasy element and veered dangerously close to camp. Fast forward to 1985. The little girl, now all grown up, is still avidly reading Wonder Woman, all the Golden Age Wonder Woman books I can find at comic book stores and conventions. Then the phone rings, and out of the blue I hear that DC wants me to do a special four-issue Wonder Woman miniseries. After recovering, recovering, I start worrying. There must be some catch. You don't understand, I tell Alan Gold, that I don't want to do the contemporary Wonder Woman if I draw Wonder Woman, I want to draw her in the Golden Age style of H.D. Peter, and Alan tells me that is exactly what DC wants. Now, things get even better. Kurt Busaic, another Golden Age fan, turns out to be a dream to work with. He accepts all the concepts I come up with without a murmur, and then does the hard part of make, taking my ideas and fleshing them out into a workable story. And then, to my cast to recycle Golden Age characters... Kurt adds a character of his own, little Susie, the engaging brat who shares Wonder Woman's adventures in the Land of Mirrors and the Atom Galaxy. From the very beginning, Susie worked just fine as a character. I knew just where to take her in the plot, and I even knew immediately what she looked like. In fact, Susie's felt so familiar for a character that someone else had created that along about the first half of the second book, I started getting strange feelings of deja vu as I drew her. Had I seen this girl somewhere before? But where? And then it came to me. There on top of my filing cabinet, still in its original frame, sat a photo of a little girl in a traditional little girl dress from the 50s with a white Peter Pan collar and little puffed sleeves. Her blonde hair is neatly pulled into two braids. No big hair ribbons, but it's close enough. There stands Susie in a picture frame of my filing cabinet. Only it's not Susie. The girl in the photo is me in 1957 years old. A little younger than Susie and a couple of years earlier than our story. But it's her all right and she's me. Subconsciously, I've been putting myself into the story. Thereby making my childhood dream come true. So the legend has a happy ending. The little girl who avidly read Wonder Woman in the 1950s finally got to travel with her idol to the Land of Mirrors and the Atom Galaxy and even to Paradise Island to have adventures that she will never forget. And that's by Trina Robbins. And I'll post this as well. But getting back to my review, like I said, I think Busaic was a great writer for this because he makes the story deliberately comic booky. It's all sorts of nuts with people's crazy powers and other worlds that seem like they're, I don't know, out of adventure time or something. Yet the plot is simple. Villain attacks, there's betrayal, followed by a regret of betrayal, and eventually Wonder Woman wins because she's Wonder Woman. She's the hero. I get the feeling that Passaic was doing his best to channel William Moulton Marston, and while having Trina Robbins do her best to give us that classic H. Harry G. Peter style, which is what she said she was doing in her text piece. I have to confess, this is the only thing I've ever seen by Trina Robbins. A quick check of her credits shows a lot more various independent work, some other work on Wonder Woman. It's good to see some female creators and a female character, especially Wonder Woman, and it seems that Robbins was working at a time where there really weren't many female creators in comics altogether, especially in the underground movement of which she was a part. Mainstream comics didn't have a lot of women who were writers or pencilers either. There were quite a few colorists, letterers, even edit editorial people, but I think maybe Ramona Freden, Louise Simonson, uh, probably the two most notable women in comics. You have uh, Barbara Randall, or would be eventually be Barbara, Barbara Kiesel, would be uh, I think was also around at this point too. And I'm probably forgetting one or two, but it really was a, a small handful of women in the comics field, which was mostly dominated by men, specifically white men. So. Robbins is kind of stands out in a way, and it's kind of refreshing to see to see to see this. Uh, Robbins' art does, you know, it takes some getting used to, especially uh, if you consider the fact that she's doing a golden age callback between Don Heck and George Perez. I've read Don Heck's art at the end of the at the end of the actual mainstream Wonder Woman series that ended with Crisis. It's good. It's serviceable. I mean, Perez is the landmark for the character during the 80s as it is. Uh, and none of Robin's art, of course, matches that contemporary style. You know, But when you ultimately settle into the book, it completely matches what Busaic is writing. And that really, really works. So like I said, this is a bit of an oddity. I don't even think it's been traded. It's on Comixology. 
you can get the single issues in, in hard co- copy uh, on eBay really, really cheap. And honestly, it's worth reading at least once just to have some fun with the crazy Golden Age-style wackiness. And there's a continuity completist thing if you're reading Wonder Woman from the end of Crisis to the beginning of Perez. So if you can find it on the cheap, I would give it a shot. So what I'm going to do right now is take a break, and then I'm going to come back with my coverage of another series titled The Legend of Wonder Woman. This one is nine issues long. It's from 2016, so stick around. podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. So The Legend of Wonder Woman was a nine-issue miniseries that first saw print in March 2016 and then finished up recently in November 2016. But it actually appeared in a different format, being published first as a digital comic, one of three digital first Wonder Woman comics that DC has offered in recent years, the other two being Sensation Comics and Wonder Woman 77. Um, I've heard good things about the other two. The Wonder Woman 77 is exactly what you think it is. It's a continuation of the Linda Carter Wonder Woman television series. Uh, I have yet to check them out, however, so I can't tell you whether or not they're actually as good as, as what I've heard. I should also note that a second Legend of Wonder Woman series was originally announced, but there has been a falling out between DC and its creators. Uh, which is a bummer because this series was nominated for an Eisner Award in 2016 for Best Digital Slash Webcomic. And it was, from what my um, the guy at my LCS, who runs my LCS, tells me, it was one of those things that DC just kind of put out there. And, well, it was a surprise that it was so popular. You know, They didn't expect it to be as popular as it was. And The Legend of Wonder Woman is a bit unique in its approach because it's an outside of the continuity of the main title, so it ha- you, ha- you don't have to be reading Wonder Woman comics to read it. It's an all-ages comic as well. But it's not all-ages in the same way that the Art Balthazar Franco comics like Tiny Titans or Superman Family or the current Superpower series have been. It's, it's meant to sit in that area between main DC titles, which are probably like teen and up, like you know older teen and up, and kiddie stuff. Than that would when you hear all ages that you might think of, I suppose that's why it was digital first. Perhaps DC was thinking that they could get to that particular audience where they are more likely to be, other than simply putting the book in comic shops where the audience might skew a little older. Either way, if this is some sort of experiment that has more comics like this and we get similar treatments of other characters, I definitely welcome it. I might have a little few more words to say that after I do my plot synopsis and review because we really should dive into the actual series, right? Well, my synopsis is not going to be as detailed as the other Legend of Wonder Woman series, but I will do my best. Our creative team for the entire series is as follows. Story and pencils are by Renee DeLiz. Inks, colors, and letters are by Ray Dillon. Assistant editor is Jessica Chen. Editor is Christy Quinn. Wonder Woman, of course, created by William Moulton Marston. The series is basically Wonder Woman's origin story. Issue number one follows the story of the Amazons and the old gods just 
kind of the same way that Paris's issue number one does, this showing the deception of Hippolyta, the eventual molding of Diana from clay, and then Diana growing up on Paradise Island as a girl who is restless and wants more for herself than being confined to the palace walls because her mother is overprotective. She then asks the Amazonian warrior Eclipe to secretly train her in sword fighting. Eclipe reluctantly agrees, mainly because Diana can sense something is amiss on Paradise Island. There's darkness encroaching. Plus, there's something special about Diana, although they're not exactly sure what. Issue number two continues that training as Diana grows from a girl to a young woman, and the encroaching darkness along with political unrest continue to make their way to the Amazons. Antiope and Melanippe, the high priestesses of Ares and Hades, tell Diana that her mother is going to step down as queen because she believes the gods want her to. She then reveals that she's known all along about Diana's secret training, and unloads a number of other secrets that she's kept over her years. Then Hippolyta begs her daughter not to put herself in danger because she doesn't want her to see her only child die. Then, about halfway through the issue, we get the moment that is one of the most well-known in Wonder Woman's origin story, which is the crash landing of Steve Trevor on Paradise Island. This is followed by the death of Eclipe at the hands of Antiope and Melanippe, who have been conspiring against Queen Hippolyta, and they continue to manipulate the situation to get Hippolyta to abdicate. But first, Diana and Steve strike up a friendship in an issue number three, although she knows he won't remember her after he's left the island because such is the curse of the island, and she's essentially keeping him safe from harm by those who are conspiring against her mother. But before Antiope can kill Steve, Hippolyta, who is possessed by the spirit of Zeus, stops her and orders the Amazons to have a tournament in which they will choose a champion to bring back him back to man's world. Just as in most iterations of Diana's origin, Hippolyta refused to let her daughter participate, causing Diana to do it in disguise. Diana wins, and Hippolyta gives her parts of her costume, the armlets of Artemis, the chestplate of Hephaestus, the tiara of Athena, and the boots of Hermes, the bridle of the Amazons, and the golden lasso of truth. She then sets her daughter off with Steve Trevor in a boat, and after they run afoul of a sea monster, Poseidon interferes, and Diana finds herself floating in Boston Harbor in the year 1944. Issue number four sees the introduction of another Wonder Woman mainstay, Etta Candy. She's one of the more popular girls at Holiday College, and an aspiring singer and befriends Diana after the Amazon princess wanders onto campus, having recently left the care of a couple in a Massachusetts fishing village who had found her when she made it to shore. Etta pretends that Diana is her cousin and invites the Amazon to live with her, trying her best to teach the girl about the customs of modern American society, as well as getting her some new clothes because all she has is what she wore on Paradise Island. Diana is also having visions of a person of great evil making its way across Europe something that may be connected to her homeland, something that eventually gets the name the Duke of Deception when she sees an article about him in a tabloid newspaper. This continues into issue number five, where Diana spends a day in Boston with Etta, talks to the editors of the tabloid, sees a completely bad representation of her mother in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, and then bumps into Steve Trevor, who has gained notoriety for seemingly coming back from the dead, but remembers nothing about Paradise Island. By issue's end, Etta and Diana have signed up to work overseas with Etta entertaining through the USO and Diana working as a nurse. We finally get the first appearance of Wonder Woman in issue number 6, as Diana is working near the front lines and tending to the wounded and hears about the Duke of Deception. The ongoing subplot of Etta wanting to be a singer and getting various USO gigs while competing with another girl continues. And then Diana puts on a soldier's uniform in the Amazon garb she had she had, and not only fights an army of undead soldiers, but comes face to face with the Duke of Deception, who is ca- carrying a staff called the Batalus, the possession of which suggests that something has happened to her mother. Diana discovers that her magic lasso can destroy the undead and takes a number of them out, but not before the Duke leaves. When she gets back, Etta insists on giving the girl an image, and after what can only be described as a montage of developing several different outfits, she makes the classic Wonder Woman costume, taking the skirt of stars from a flag that the couple in that fishing village who had found Diana had given her when she washed on shore. 
Issue number seven is the triumphant arrival of Wonder Woman at the front, fighting for freedom for everyone in the world and helping the Allies where she can. This is watched closely by Priscilla Rich, who will eventually become the cheetah, but not in this story. And the Duke of Deception. Diana also adopts the Diana Prince civilian identity and meets up again with Steve Trevor, who has been basically assigned to PR duty because of this guy who came back from the dead status. Wonder Woman is eventually called to Athens, where she fights with the Duke and some of his demons, losing the fight even while she tries to appeal to the person who the Duke once was, a guy named Tommy, whose brother William was killed by the Allies, or so he believes. This angers the Duke, who's really this guy possessed by a sacred amulet. And Diana eventually sees a vision of Eclipse, who gives her a warning about what she is going to hear from the gods. It's then when Zeus appears and tells Diana that he wants her to be the general of his army that will raise the earth because of all the evil that humanity has brought to it. Diana defies Zeus and is sent back home having been stripped of her powers. We begin issue number 8 with Diana trying simply to live as Diana Prince while Etta continues to seek fame with the USO. There's a cute bit with them meeting a young kid named Alfred Pennyworth. And they eventually meet up with Steve again, with Steve telling Diana about his mission, which will put him right in the path of the Duke of Deception and the end of the, end of the Titan that the gods of Olympus one fought, once fought and defeated, which can be found in a mountain of Scandinavia. They find a plane named the Wonder Woman and commandeer it heading there. On the way, they discover it's no ordinary plane. It's an experimental plane that turns invisible when a special lever is pulled, and this invisibility helps take down a number of Nazi planes until they are shot down themselves. Meanwhile, the Duke of Deception is working with Priscilla Rich to unleash the hidden Titan, and Diana decides that powers are no powers. She has to be Wonder Woman and save everyone. When Steve is shot down, she jumps to help him and is about to fall to her death when Pegasus appears and helps them both get to safety. It's with this that Steve realizes that Diana is Wonder Woman and that Diana is also the young woman he met and befriended on Paradise Island after his plane crash. She then goes face to face with the Duke of Deception and binds him with her magic lasso. He sees the truth, which is that the Allies didn't kill his brother by bombing his town, but that the Axis powers did it and his brother actually is alive. He realizes that Ares has tricked him and rejects the stone that is giving them power. He then leaves to get his vengeance while Priscilla sets the Titan free. Issues number nine's story is the climax and conclusion, while Etta and Steve try to help their fellow allied troops hold enemy attacks. Diana is knocked out and sees visions of Gaia, protector of Earth herself, who tells her of the origin of the Earth and of the Titan, who is not from the Earth, but is from outer space and is one of a race of manhunters, who were once protectors of the universe, but then rebelled against their programming and wanted to destroy all life. It was also Gaia who allowed Diana to be created from clay and who used Diana back her powers because Wonder Woman is much her champion as anyone else's. The battle against the Axis powers continues to rage and Diana reappears and goes right after the Manhunter, eventually hearing the words of Gaia that tell her to go after the creature's heart. Diana begins to fight and pummel the Manhunter with everything she has and eventually gets to the heart of the creature, destroying it and sending it back into space, with the light from the creature erupting so much that even Queen Hippolyta sees it from the hidden Paradise Island. Eclipse visits Diana again to wish her congratulations and sends her back to the world, telling her that the world needs her. She realizes that she has a mission and decides to leave Etta and Steve to go and fight for the world, and that all she has come to value. Meanwhile, we get an update on the whereabouts of the villains. Priscilla Rich, having lost the power she had temporarily gained, walk, wakes up at home with no recollection of how she got there, but we do see her with two cat's eyes. Thomas visits his brother in the hospital and continues to plan revenge, and in deep space, we see other Manhunters suggest that this is possibly not over. Months later, Etta Candy finds Diana on a small island and offers to be Diana's sidekick and help her navigate her way through the world, especially now that the war has ended. The Wonder Woman says, Are you certain, Etta? It's dangerous to be around Wonder Woman. Honey, what could possibly be more dangerous than what we've already been through? Now I have a teeny tiny favor to ask you. You ever heard of Gateway City? And we get the end? So there's a point with some superheroes where you do have to ask yourself, okay, how many times do we have to do the origin? Wonder Woman definitely falls into this. I think at this point I've seen Diana win that contest as many times as I've seen the Waynes get gunned down or Krypton explode. 
All right, maybe not the Waynes getting gunned down because there seemed there was a point where I felt I was being reminded of that every other issue. But since this is out of continuity, this is not an Elseworlds story, whatever they're calling those these days, and it's meant for an all-ages audience as opposed to the more adult teen-plus mainstream audience, I think it's great that we're getting an origin again. Furthermore, I think this story works incredibly well, and I really enjoyed it. In fact, I would say that skewing this toward a slightly younger audience really helped this story because it freed up the artwork as well. I'm not saying that the current series isn't good because, as I said toward the top of the episode, I love the current book. I love what Greg Rucker is doing. I love what the art teams are doing. But there's a lightness to the art here and a lightness to the story here that make this Legend of Wonder Woman series wholly entertaining. Plus, on a general note, the writing is more compressed than what we're currently used to. Now, I don't know if that's a result of originally being digitally serialized before being put into print, but I felt like I was getting some serious bang for my buck, and the writing took up every bit of the page and didn't waste anything. I even didn't mind that it took us a while to get off Paradise Island, because that set up a conflict in story points that play off, that really did pay off later. To get into specifics, I'll start with a couple of notes about the supporting cast and the villain, then talk about Wonder Woman herself. I said in the previous part of the episode that my experience with early Wonder Woman stories isn't very much, so I didn't know Etta Candy very well. But I like this character. He's a brassy friend that's not the annoying Jimmy Olsen type, and is a good comic relief, especially with this subplot she has to trying to make it as a singer, and there's this kind of mean girls clique that's trying to outdo her. And she also is given something to do and literally packs a punch at one point or two. The attack using the invisible plane, um, she just ends up taking charge because that's what Etta does. And she's like, I'm going to be the gunner. And it's it's really played out. It's one of the major reasons I like this character so much. Uh, physically, she's the classic Etta Candy. which means she's plus size, but she's not, she's not portrayed as Wonder Woman's fat friend, though. Um, it's way more of a positive image and, and a strong, strong character. As for Steve Trevor, he honestly doesn't really seem to be much more than a plot device at times. He's the guy who Diana essentially falls for. He's considered a war hero, but so what they do is uh, put him on PR duty, kind of like what they do with Steve Rogers in Captain America, the first Avenger. Actually, reading this comic made me want to read a Captain America Wonder Woman World War II era crossover. I think that this creative team would be great for it, too. Uh, or maybe John Byrne. But seriously, I, I didn't mind it too much. Um, you know, like getting back to this story, Steve, Trevor, um, he's just there. And Diana, you know, Diana's supposed to be the focus of the book anyway. It's not, it's, it, this isn't, this isn't Steve Trevor, you know, like actually being the hero with Diana being the title, title character. Now, as for the villain... I've read that this book, like I said, it was going to get a sequel series. They were obviously setting up the Cheetah to lend the last issue. From what I understand, the Duke of Deception is a reinvented version of an original villain named the Duke of Deception. So here's what the uh, original Encyclopedia of Comic Book Heroes has to say about him. It's a long entry, so I'll just read. I'll read the first. Uh, I'll, I'll read the first couple of paragraphs. A treacherous Martian who is, along with the Lord conquesting the Earl of Greed, one of the principal three commanders in the service of the war god Mars. By using his astral body to animate the numerous false forms or ectoplasmic phantasms, which he houses in a special storeroom on the planet Mars, deception can assume the form of anyone he chooses. The war god Mars refers to him as the Lord of Liars. And the Chronicles call him the Imperator of Illusions, the Master of Matter, the Master of Illusion, and the Martian Master of Treachery. In the Chronicles, he is referred to both as the Duke of Deception and the and Duke Deception. The Ruthless Laia is his daughter. In the fall of 1942, the war god Mars concocts an elaborate scheme to capture Wonder Woman, whose defense America of American democracy have incensed him by taking Steve Trevor prisoner and using him as bait to lure Wonder Woman to the planet Mars. But Wonder Woman triumphs over the Martian schemers and rescues Trevor from their clutches. Furious over this humiliation, the war god vows to send his top three commanders to Earth to take her captive. This is Wonder Woman number two for a story. The first of Mars is agents to be dispatched as the Earl of Greed, but Greed ultimately returns to Mars beaten and humiliated by Wonder Woman. 
incensed Mars casts Greed into a dungeon and then dispatches the Duke of Deception to Earth with instructions to capture Wonder Woman and return her to Mars as a prisoner. On Earth, Deception instigates a Japanese aerial attack on Hawaii as part of his scheme to capture Wonder Woman, but the Valiant Amazon quickly turns the sneak attack on Hawaii into humiliating disaster for the sly little men from Nippon, quote, and turns Deception's plot into a shambles. This is in Wonder Woman issue number two, the third story from the fall of 42. Deception returns to Mars, beaten and humiliated by the Wonder Woman. Mars orders him thrown into the same dungeon with the Earl of Greed. Mars's third emissary to Earth, however, Lord Conquest succeeds in making Wonder Woman his prisoner, and then he, when he returns to Mars in triumph, the overjoyed war god orders Deception Greed released from the dungeons. Wonder Woman ultimately escapes and returns to the Earth, so that once again the war god has been thwarted, and that is Wonder Woman issue number two, story number four. So there's a lot of difference between that version of the Duke of Deception and this. Um, personally, the way he's done here, and this is a welcome change, it's a little bit Red Skull. Again, this is why I'm like, I would love to see Captain America and Wonder Woman in a World War II crossover. I think it'd be really fun. Um, and it, it's because it's really, really works here because he provides himself, he proves himself a good villain. I thought that the supernatural aspect was well played, uh, even more well played than what we got with Brian Azzarello, which I, like I said, it wasn't much of a story. And if I extend my criticism to of that a little bit more, his run on Wonder Woman came off like him trying to do Alan Moore or Neil Gaiman. Although, honestly, I think Neil Gaiman on Wonder Woman might be interesting as well. Just just to see what he would do with a Wonder Woman story. Maybe not the origin, because again, maybe just a, just just a story uh, where you know you have her and a villain or something or whatever. But that'd be interesting. But Cap, Wonder Woman, World War Two, DC, Marvel. Set aside your differences and make this happen. It'd be really cool. But anyway, back to this. I thought the incorporation of the Manhunter as a monster to fight was well done. It sees other elements of the DCU, but it wasn't setting up anything specifically. It was nice little references here or there. It was a good illusion that didn't take readers out of the story. The same thing with the Alfred Pennyworth thing. Uh, because, like, you know, a lot of people are not familiar with the Manhunter as a concept in Green Lantern. Plus, having a Manhunter be a mythical titan was a simple way of grounding the story and adding a layer to the concept of a legend. Every legend, when you think of it, is grounded in some sort of reality. What the book is pointing out here is not that legends aren't true, but that they also have have actual stories that are more complex or go beyond the tales that we are familiar with. It's a nice, pretty sophisticated layering that the writer and artist go on, have going on here. Now... As for Diana herself, I really like how Renee DeLiz first has her with some common tropes and then fills things in from there. Diana first is a child filled with wanderlust, then she's a fish out of water, and then she's a warrior and a symbol. All of these could make her easily one-dimensional and flat, and yet they really make her more than that. I also have to give the art a compliment here, because during those issues where Diana is portrayed as a fish out of water, they do a great job of making her seem awkward, kind of like a girl in your class who in junior high, or maybe the first couple years of high school, is too tall, maybe a little clumsy and gawky, but grew up to be gorgeous and confident. Wonder Woman is statuesque, she's powerful, and that has always been the source of her, well, for lack of a better word, sexiness. But she's at Holiday College in this series. She seems meek and struggling to fit in. DeLiz and Dylan do a great job at portraying this through body language and facial expressions, especially around other characters and other people. But then when it's time for Go to Action, we get a logical progression of her character and her appearance and her finding her own way and becoming her own warrior as well as the champion of Gaia. I love that aspect of the story. It was outstanding, because if you think of Wonder Woman as a symbol of feminine power, having her get her power from Zeus, who is not only a male god, but a male god who is known for some downright awful behavior with women, undermines her strength. Having her lose it, and then come to know that she truly is a champion of Gaia, the mother of the Earth, reinforces that power. It's really, really simple, and it really, really works. The series never dragged. It never felt like it had filler. It delivered the goods in a way that so many high-profile comic runs or projects haven't been able to do. I highly recommend picking it up. This is available digitally. If it hasn't been traded by now, it will be. So get it. Read it. You will not be sorry. 
I'll be back after this with some final thoughts on Wonder Woman to close out the episode, so stick around. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Oh, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, do, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. what's it my pro- okay. It definitely built, built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. And that'll just about do it for the comics that I'm covering in this episode. But before I go, I did want to talk a little bit more about the character and my experience with her, mostly outside of comics. First, I cannot talk about Wonder Woman without bringing up that Amanda is a fan of the character. She's got some really cool Wonder Woman stuff, including a sketch by George Perez and a signed print by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name. I plan later on this year on having her on to talk about the movie when it comes out, maybe even a couple of comics. But I really like the idea that this is a character who has endured for 75 years and has been a symbol for about just as long, especially for girls and women. Probably not the best person to go on about that too much, but I did want to point it out and recommend three pieces of reading for you. First, if you can get your hands on it, Find the Les Daniels book about Wonder Woman. This was the third in a series of books he did a number of years ago, the other two being Superman and Batman. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful coffee table book that goes through Diana's history in and out of comics and provides a full illustrated picture of her up until about the early 2000s. Second, there's an essay that Linda Carter wrote a number of years ago called Wonder Woman Can Save the World. It's not very long, it really sheds a light on the idea of Wonder Woman. It's an inspiration and a, as an inspiration and a symbol. It also provides some great perspective from the person who played her on television. If I can find it, I will uh, put it in the show notes for you. Finally, I recommend the book The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore. L-E-P-O-R-E. It's a publication history as well as a biography of William Moulton Marston, but it's incredibly interesting, especially considering some of the direct and indirect ties that Marston had to important people in the women's rights movement in the early 20th century. The book straddles the line between pop culture history and feminist studies. It's really well written and gripping in a way, and, and I would wholeheartedly recommend checking it out. As for me, I'll be back next month with a special guest. Stella and I got together back in December to record a sequel of sorts to our Yakin' Over Pancakes episode, This time around, we'll be talking about one of the most important and well-known sitcoms of the 1990s, Friends. I hope you all had a safe and happy holiday season. I wish you all the health and happiness in 2017. And until next time, thanks for listening, and take care.
Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.